0: One other critical thing is different. And we're going to tell you this, and you had better pay attention to this, because if you don't, you're going to hurt yourself. We're going to tell you when you train that you are to take a great big breath and hold it. Squat, stand back up, exhale. In other words, we're going to tell you to perform a valsalva. When you, when you squat, when you do anything that involves weight and a loaded spine, you hold your breath. And that's, that's backwards from what everybody else tells you, isn't it? Everybody else tells you to inhale on the way down and exhale on the way up. And that is complete and utter bullshit. If you do that, you will hurt yourself. And here's why. Dr. Bradford has now got to come up here and talk to us.
1: All right. So you guys have heard that, right? You've heard not to hold your breath. And you probably heard specifically to actually, you know, breathe in on the way down and out on the way up to try to manage something. How many of you guys have heard that? Yeah, it's almost it's almost universal, really. Well, it's it's worse than that. It. It's worse than that. It's something that's that's been repeated over and over. It's been said by, as Rip points out, a bunch of certifying agencies. You know, people that you expect to have authority. And it's said by people in the medical professions all the time. And it's based entirely on completely failing to pay any attention to the physiology, to the science behind it, or what actually happens to people. So it's one of these things that kind of makes you laugh because it's so completely completely ass-backwards. And they're actually telling you to do something that's completely natural that we want to reinforce. And there isn't really any kind of leg to stand on as far as the risk. Although everyone is concerned about the risk, and that's why you hear it said, because it makes sense on some level and it plays into our fears. But what do do we know about people's ability to um, judge risk, to weigh the risk of one event versus the other? We're terrible at it, right? So even when someone points out to you that you're terrible at it, you still kind of want to do it because it just feels right, especially when you've heard something over and over from people, Okay? So you hear that you're supposed to manage your breathing to do what? To keep your blood pressure from going up, right? So people already people, people hear that and go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I don't want my blood pressure to go up because bad things happen when your blood pressure goes up. Right? You don't want high blood pressure. Well, you don't want it chronically. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a short-term increase in blood pressure. What's the short-term problem with blood pressure going up that these guys are worried about? Well, they're worried about this short-term effect having an adverse consequence. And what is that? It's basically that you're gonna have a, a stroke. In other words, that your blood pressure is gonna get high enough to burst blood vessels, right? And if that happens in your very important brain, what is that? That's a really bad day, okay? So I think when you, when you hear that, it kinda of makes sense on some level, you know, some, as you see their veins pop out a little bit. You probably have a relative, because stroke's fairly common, that had a stroke. Of course, no one points out that strokes are most commonly a, a stroke from clotting, inhibiting blood flow, not from bleeding. Those are actually the minority. Okay, But that just seems like it makes sense. Well, we, wanna, we don't want to have a stroke. We don't really want to bleed anywhere else. I mean, that's not, that's not a fun day. So hey, this makes sense. Let's minimize this blood pressure increase by managing our breathing. So that just kind of makes sense to people on some level. What's the problem with that? Well, all I've drawn here is your blood pressure going up. And the problem, fundamentally, is that just thinking, OK, don't want blood pressure to go up, don't want to have a stroke or you know, any kind of you know, damage. It's just looking at one thing. It's just looking at your blood pressure going up, right? And it's not looking at the whole context of what occurs when we actually take our big breath clamp down on it, tighten our muscles, get under the bar, and perform a squat when we're actually training. Or when we do the Valsalva anywhere else, which is a very common thing we do. We use it to speak. We use it when we cough. Uh, You use it throughout the day very automatically. So it really comes from just looking at one side of the thing and not the context, and then, for some almost bizarre reason, failing to look at what actually happens, Okay, So in other words, well, do people that do this actually have a problem with having strokes does it actually cause a problem cuz you'd expect if it was really dangerous that the answer would be yes but in fact this is <laughs> this is not even a risk factor for a bleeding stroke okay so how could people be so wrong i mean where does this come from well let's just kind of take it apart and start looking at you know why this is okay in other words looking at the context where it actually occurs well not quite in the skeleton, but in you, we're going to use him as the prop. Um, So look at the context and see, well, what does the science say about it, right? And what actually happens? Because science is wrong all the time. That's the fun part about it. You keep, keep testing things and finding out new information. But what actually happens? In other words, do people have a higher risk of having a stroke from the Valsalva? And then number three, which is critically important to context, is what happens when we train? OK? So starting with science, part one. Well, have the pressures actually been measured? What actually happens? Well, when you go and you hold your breath like that, and you get under the bar and you're performing the movement, this definitely goes up. Your blood pressure goes up. Now, it goes up no matter what you're doing with your breathing. And think about this. Your blood pressure, you're, you just think about it as, as uh, fluid, throwing, flowing through a a pipe, right? Volume's going through, there's a certain amount of, you know, that's the current going through and then you have resistance to that and that's gonna develop the, the pressure in the system. So once you start clamping down on muscles, you're changing some aspects of that system and the pressure will increase. You're tightening these muscles, even if you don't accentuate that by the big held breath and trying as hard as you can to make the pressure go up, which is what we're gonna be doing. Okay, so it most definitely goes up and it needs to. What happens if your pressure doesn't go up? You, you have a problem staying conscious. So your blood pressure is not managed um, consciously, right? It's managed by your autonomic nervous system. You can kind of think of that as the automatic nervous system. That's a rip making fun of there. OK, so it's going to react to, it's, in other words, it's sensing, it's measuring. the the pressures throughout this system and dynamically changing them to make sure the blood flow here is good, the blood flow to keep everything working is good, right? We've got to keep everything going. This is a very complex dynamic system. So where you fall down is if you just look at this, right? And it's pretty easy to see um, what happens just on a theoretical basis when we think about the blood pressure going up in the system. And let's say we actually go and measure it, so let's pretend this is in the blood, in the, in the vessel, and here's a vessel, okay, and you think, well, this pressure going up, is it likely to cause any problem? Is it increasing your risk for a stroke? Well, to increase your risk for the stroke, this pressure would have to go up and exceed the strength of the vessel to burst it, right? Which would mean that this pressure up would have to be greater than the pressure outside. It's pretty obvious if you're actually expanding something, if this is, balancing out, it never expands. You could eventually crush the thing in between, but it it wouldn't expand and burst. Okay, So let's say we're going to take a measurement, which, of course, has very conveniently done. These have been measured in animals. This has been measured in people. And let's say we're looking at the stuff that's right here in the middle. In other words, it's receiving the direct increase in pressure from the held breath, the direct increase in pressure from all this stuff being squeezed by these muscles. right? So this is, we're building the pressure with the valsalva in here. So if you look at the aorta, right, your large artery. If you look at the cardiac tissues and you measure across it, across those things, what you find is this. In other words, you're developing pressure here, right? The reason you're getting pressure is you're clamping this stuff. This is very pretty easy to see. It's it's outside of this vessel. You're smushing back on these vessels and you don't actually get an increase in the gradient, in other words the difference between these forces. So you can't just, you're not going to burst that because you're doing that, because you're increasing the pressure because this increasing pressure counteracts that increased pressure. Okay, It's very easy to see how that happens right there. Ah, but you say, these guys aren't concerned about this, they're concerned about, I mean obviously you can't have your aorta rupturing, that's def- pretty quickly, OK? But they're concerned about this happening up in your brain, where it's not as obvious what's going on with the changes in pressure. But once again, this has also been measured. And what happens is you get some amount of pushback here. So it's not as direct and obvious, OK? But how do you expect you get a pushback up here? When you're squeezing here, how could that possibly affect what's going on in the vessels in your brain? Well, it happens because this, your brain tissue, is connected into the spinal cord, which is going down here, as you know. Kind of hard to see here, but it's in there in between this stuff in the spine. And this is going to look kind of odd. Now we're pretending this is up in the brain. We're gonna give you your skull, which does what? Limits the potential to expand, right? And it's connected. Well, it's connected in the tissue, but what's important is that it's connected um, with the fluid that circulates and floats your brain, okay? The cerebral spinal fluid. You'll see that abbreviated as CSF. So your brain is actually floating in spinal fluid the CSF, cerebrospinal fluid. Okay, if we took, if that wasn't there, the weight of your brain would actually damage it. It would actually compress it. Okay, so it, it kind of keeps it in its own little isolated environment. But this circulates through the ventricles of the brain around there and down as this develops, this tissue is all connected around there. So it's, it's just like this. And if you can imagine what's happening, again, this isn't a solid piece. We have these uh, vertebral structures. We have a bunch of connective tissue. And what happens is this squeezes, is that increases pressure through those soft tissue spaces right here, and that pressure increases in the cerebral spinal fluid, providing a countering force, Okay. Now, when they've measured it, and they've done this just a few times in people, because you obviously don't just pop people's brains open and start measuring stuff like this for fun. They've done it in some kind of odd circumstances where people were getting surgery anyway for serious epilepsy and things like that. So they were going in and they could actually directly measure it and this varies somewhat in in the actual effects but you get a countering force. What does that actually mean? Well it means when you measure this you know whether it's this much or this much right, actually having a valve salva and having the increased pressure means there's less of a gradient. If you don't have the valve salva You're just going to have a little bit of pressure increase, and you're actually going to have more of a gradient, and actually, on just a theoretical basis, be predisposed to having a rupture. Okay. Now, Rip mentioned aneurysms. That's you know people that are most concerned about having a rupture are people with aneurysms, which is essentially a defect in the vessel wall, and you can just imagine this as just being a weak area that can tend that can because it's weak, it balloons out. Okay. And so that's what people worry about specifically when they talk about, well, that pressure's going to go up and you're going to break that aneurysm open. Okay. So statistically, um, and it depends somewhat on the, the genetic background because some populations like, like Finns, Japanese have a higher rate. Um, but statistically, there are people in here that, ha- that have aneurysms. Some people just have a really horrible genetic predisposition, they have them even when they're very young. But as you get older and older, these tend to develop. So it gets up into the low percentages up to about 5% as people get older. And this can be associated with just a congenital kind of defect, but it's also just kind of general inflammatory damage over time. So it's associated with being older, smoking, all the bad stuff, smoking, diabetes, all these things that are inflammatory that tend to increase your risk for aneurysms. Okay. And if you have, you know, aneurysms, you start thinking like, oh gosh, do I wanna do this? Well, you you always have to evaluate the risk for yourself. But based on just the science itself, remember the risk is actually going to be lower as you increase the the pressure in your CSF. Okay. Now, science, as we said, can be wrong. It's wrong all the time. In fact, a lot of the studies that we like are think, you know, we agree with them just on the basis of what they say, turn out to be wrong later um, or just kind of weak overall. So you always want to look and see what the actual numbers are in populations and see if it kind of matches the stuff you're measuring in the lab or if you're modeling or anything like that, right? So what happens? Do you actually see increased risk in populations that are training with weights that are using a Valsalva versus populations that aren't? And the short answer is no. If you come through the literature, you can find a few cases of people having bleeding strokes that are associated with gym activity or other physical activity. And what you find is, well, do you really think the person was doing a hard valsalva on the uh, leg press or when they were doing a curl? If you look through them, you'll find not that these people had these happen when they're doing really hard, heavy stuff where they probably were using a valsalva because really they don't ask them what they were doing, right? What you find is they're kind of just distributed over just general activity in the gym. So I'm not kidding about this. It's like you'll, you'll find like half the cases are like really dumb little exercises that you think well that was just again really bad luck because when you look at that kind of information that's what you have to assume. It's like well it doesn't really seem that it's correlated. You'd assume that if you're doing really heavy loads and you're holding really hard that this would be a heavier pressure, and you'd be more likely to have it happen. You don't see it. If you look in powerlifting populations, you don't, you don't see them having increased risks of strokes that you can tease out from the information, despite the fact that crazy people that compete at high levels are also likely, more likely to use drugs and all sorts of things that are not exactly good for maintaining cardiovascular health. Okay, So the numbers don't really add up. And, uh, like I said, they don't really ask people. Uh, it's hard to quantify who's using it and who's not. And the reason it's really hard to quantify is because it's such a natural reaction. In fact, the, probably the easiest way to convince somebody that, hey, it's okay to do it, because they're just still like, I don't know, but I don't know, I just want to be safe. It's like, well, you're not safer, but you know, whatever. You know, is to show them how much they use it all the, all the time, right? So if Scott comes up here. There's all sorts of situations you do. One is when you're pushing against something you know, because you need something to happen. So if we decided we hate each other and we're going to fight over the skeleton because it's the prize and now we're pushing against each other, just go ahead and push on me, push on me, push on me. You do this and we're actually serious? What are you going to do? You've been in fights. Before you push people, before you pick things up, you automatically will hold your breath as you do it. right? Even just kind of small tasks in the house when people are vacuuming or something, they're going to move something. You'll hear them, <coughs> you'll hear them when they release it all the time. So that's very quick. And then the other thing you see is when you, anytime you're trying to like, you know, resist force, so if i going to punch him, kind of surprise him, got him, get a little pushback. Any time you're trying to brace yourself, you automatically do that. Just think about it. Just imagine, you know, we're actually in a conflict. You'll automatically do it, right? And people start thinking, why do you automatically do it? Because it's protective from, obviously, from like a my little... 10 punch, I gave them there, but it increases your ability to when you're bracing yourself, you can produce force better, right? Based on the force transmission. And one thing we're going to talk about in just a second, I'm going to save it for later, but um, it's something we naturally do, and animals do it the same way, too. Okay, so dogs and horses, when they pull, when they go to break the load, will hold too, because it makes it that much easier to do. I'll talk about the easier in just a second. The third thing I wanted to touch on is that's part of the context is the context of training. Right? You start out with maybe 95, 135 pounds, whatever it is in the squat the first day when you're learning to keep tight, you're learning to keep your back in position, and what happens over time? You increase that, right? So your body is adapting to the training stress, and it's not just these big muscles that we're training in the, you know, through the hips, into the legs, the rectors, all of that. It's also our whole system again. So again, this is the context of what are we doing? We're training, what do we do when we train? We're forcing ourselves to adapt. What adapts? Well, it's not just the skeletal muscle. It's the smooth muscle, it's found here. It's your cardiac tissue. It's your ability to manage the swings and the blood pressure when you're under the bar. So many people will notice when they first start training Sometimes they might get lightheaded or, you know, they, they notice their heart rate changing after they've stopped. Just like when you train for anything else, you get better at managing those stresses and those swings. So if you look at someone who's trained for a while, strong guy, you know, is up to 500-something to squat, guy that's new, put him on the same weight. What you'll find is the trained guy is much more efficient in how he produces that force. He's better doing the Valsalva, but the actual pressure swings are dampened. If you think about that, that's what happens when we get, at anyth- we get good at anything. We get more efficient at how we do it. We get the same result with less active input. It looks, starts to look easy to everybody, but it's not easy because the bar is heavier. So everything is adapting the system. Okay. Now, I said one of the, the things, and this is something, again, that can help show people that um, a light bulb will go in their head um, when they, they put this together. How many people in here use a belt when they're training? Okay, most people who've been training for a while and developed a decent amount of strength start using a belt. How does a belt work? Have you ever thought about it? People that don't know think a belt works by squeezing you, like the belt's doing the job. That's not how a belt works at all. Belt provides no help at all by just being on there. That's how you get studies of people in Home Depot that were handed out stuff and no their back so it didn't get better. Because they still weren't picking things up right, they weren't using the belt right, everything was just complete fail. A belt works because you actively use your torso differently and are able to have a harder contraction, in other words, harder ab contractions when you have a belt on. And that's because, first of all, you have the proprioceptive feedback and you have something to push against. Why do we use a barbell? Well, you can quantify what you're pushing against, and you can push against something harder when it's there to push on. I mean, it's, it sounds crazy, but, you know, the imag- uh, I don't have any barbells here. I'm on the road. I'll do imaginary squats. Does that work? <laughs> no, of course not. It's kind of the same concept. When you have the belt on, and now you do the same thing, take your big breath, squeeze just like before, with that around you, you can now produce much harder contraction because you have your sides are coming in just a little bit with the tightness of the belt. As you squeeze, that straightens out, which increases the pressure on the belt. And now what? You're able to develop more pressure, which is more stiffness and resistance to this bending. So it works in conjunction with your muscles holding your spine straight. When you use the belt you put it on, what happens is the same weight feels lighter. It's not lighter. Why in the world would it feel lighter? Well, because now we're not leaking power potentially by being a little loose through here. But there's also the magic quality magic. quality of, remember, the whole system, where you're always getting constant feedback about what's going on as you move. Right? We want to keep our blood going to our brain. We also want to not fall over. We're producing force. Stability allows you to produce more force you will recruit more motor units when you are more stable. So this is the kind of the magic effect of the belt. Now your nervous system will recruit these more effectively. The weight's not lighter, you're not magically stronger, what you are is better, you're recruiting better. What happens if you recruit more? Well, you get the weight up, you keep adding weight to the bar. In other words, the belt is a tool to enhance training and the belt works by helping us produce a better valve salva and more stabi- stabilization through the spine. Does that make sense to everybody? Some people think it's cheating. But that's because they're wrong. OK, because belts don't do any work for you. They make you work harder because you're contracting your abs harder and because you have more weight on your back. OK, so they're they're training tool. Does anyone have questions about what I said or? I don't personally. Some people, I don't know if everyone heard, he asked uh, what about exercise induced headaches. So um, that's something that typically gets better with training. Um, and it's the cause of those things, people don't know exactly, but a lot of headaches. Have you, how many of you guys have had a headache and then had someone start, you start to develop it and they'll you start rubbing yourself or somebody else starts rubbing the muscles back here. So all this clamping down is often the cause of the headache. That's, it seems to be the problem in a lot of people. I've never actually had exercise-reduced headache while under the barbell, but uh-huh. I've had exercise-reduced headache while consistently breathing and doing an exercise, like, uh, like, a, like a chest fly or something like that, like consistently doing like, uh, like
0: hand deep breathing, trying oh, to yeah. keep the reputation and
1: head. Yeah, I wouldn't think it has anything to do with the breathing per se. Have you only noticed it with certain exercises? Right, right. Yeah, so there can be tension directly in these muscles that's associated with headache. But other I mean just in general, many headaches are have to do with vasospasms and stuff. So somebody's sensitive to various triggers, people that have migraines, for example, will often keep logs to try to figure out what's triggering their headaches and, and kinda of modify that. Do you think that
0: exercise induced headaches if they do happen, is that an indication
1: of No. Or weakness? No. No, there's no tracking with anything like that. Um, But again, they tend to get better with training. And why would that be? Well, just kind of, I don't know, some people might quit, but probably naturally people just stop doing the overdoing. What do people do when they first start learning a lot of things? How many guys play guitar? One guy in the back. Another guy in the back. I'm like, these people at the gym with me, and they all play guitar a little bit. Well, it's like a lot of things. When you first start pressing down the strings, what you'll find is people just kill it. They clamp down, they get their fingers, you know, burning and bloody and what of the guys that that have been playing for a while do they develop that efficiency where they press just as hard as they need to to get the to get the the tone and to make it sound exactly what they want so they actually are doing a lot less work so they're more efficient and it may be just that simple same kind of thing going on like now you're not overcompensating, you know squeezing down here just doing something else strange that's inducing the headache so you'll see that Okay, yeah, so that doesn't have anything to do with, that's not the Valsalva, that's we are catching it. Okay. okay, so the most common way people get lightheaded when they're doing something, other than just forgetting to breathe, right. which people sometimes do, you know, you, you, gotta, you gotta breathe, you can't just hold your breath, okay, is because they're actually applying pressure in this area, in the throat. Now, some people are going to be sensitive to this just because of how they're built, right, because of how their arms are put in the throat, you can hold it a little better so it's not smashing into you. But the sensitive structure, uh, the carotid sinus up here, now remember, we're sensing a pressure through our body, all sorts of different, what are called baroreceptors, sense of pressure. Okay, so that's a very important system. That's one component in regulating blood pressure. And there's a bunch of them up there. What, you just imagine that just sitting up there, and now you're smelling the bar in it. Yeah. What's happening? You're making it think, gosh, there's high pressure. Time to lower the pressure, right? So you get this reflex that way. Um, it can also happen if you just, some people, just, they'll just kind of do this with their neck muscles. You they know, so start tightening through the scalenes, all this, you get the same kind of effect. They're basically squeezing their muscles around that same area. Now the little funny part is that structure is not located the same people, same place in everybody. So it's kind of low in some people, higher up in other people. So just depending how this is coming in with the bar and where that's located, some people have all kinds of trouble with it. It's not that common in women. In fact, I've only seen it one or two times. Men it's much more common. But men have longer forearms than women do, and they tend to use heavier loads, and they tend to have less room with flexibility. So they're not as able to adjust the bar position and get away from their throat. So it's like the trio. Steph, uh-huh. going back to the
0: workout induced just
1: headache,
0: I've never seen, I've personally never experienced, you know, for a maximum of like a one RM or three RM set. But I noticed when I was rehabbing my injury, doing high reps.
1: Yeah. Lightweight. Lightweight. Uh, all that yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and that actually reminds me of something that I, I left out. So when I say that people do Valsalva automatically, like throughout the day, when they tell people in studies not to do a Valsalva, once you get over, and it kind of depends on the person, the exercise, once you get over 80 to like 85%, people do it anyway. It's almost impossible not to do it. The same also goes for uh, like high rep sets where you're, you're pushing into failure. As it, in other words, this thing start to get real hard whether it's because of the number of reps or because the weight on the bar, people just do it because it helps them eke out that last little bit. In your case, what you're talking about doing the reps, you might just, it's like you're trying to think, like, let's get the pinkies into it, you know, not the pinkies doing it, but like your neck muscles are just trying to help you lift the bar, yeah. 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 Well, that's why I don't do that kind of number, no matter what. Can't count that high. Yeah, I understand, I understand. Scott?
0: So we've all seen the pictures and videos of the, um, the, the heavy squatter with the nosebleed. Mm-hmm. Now Was that just as simple as the pressure gradient just having a bit of, enough of a differential to where the nose bled or is there some other variable? In there's,
1: the- there's a few other variables with that. So some people are predisposed to having little, little ruptures. On the surface of the skin you'll see it on some, some people, on their eyeballs. Um, Ed Cohn, I think this is really revolting and I would have quit if I were him but apparently other people in his family like that, he would bleed like into his tear ducts and wipe away blood. Now I wouldn't do squats, wipe away blood and think that was okay, but hey, Ed Cohn, monster. Okay, but some people are more prone to these, okay, just overall. Let's consider a couple things that go along with that situation specifically. The big structures that we're worried about, when we're talking about the blood pressure being high and being controlled, are the arteries and the arterioles, the smaller you know, branches, branching off of the arteries. Those are muscular structures. So this wall is very thick and, and, and it responds to input to get constricted or relaxed, okay? So it's designed to get the high pressures through without anything bad happening, okay? Where they go next is they get smaller and smaller and they go into the capillaries. What do the capillaries do? Well, they're designed for exchange, right? So all the nutrients going in and out into the extracellular fluid. So capillary, instead of being you know, this layered formation that has your epithelial cells, that has your um, endothelial cells and your uh, smooth muscle and all that, what you're talking about is just a one cell layer thick deal that they come in and out of. So it's designed for permeability, essentially. Those are very delicate structures. In fact, you're constantly bleeding all the time. That's why we give you a little bit too much of uh, warfarin, which is a common rat poison. Um, we use it as an anti-clotting drug. Just a little too much will be a problem because you'll start bleeding, because really you're bleeding all the time. You're bleeding and patching, bleeding and patching. So as you go into smaller arterioles, leading to the capillaries and the capillaries themselves, those are you know, high risk, if you will, high risk structures. Okay. And those do have uh, little mini bleeds, just constantly. So some people will, will see on those surface structures that kind of thing happening. It's not reflective of what's going on in your tissues, in your muscles, or in any of the major vessels or brain or anything like that. It's because they're, they're basically unprotected on the outside. And they're very fine and delicate. All right. But you, know, you may have a problem explaining that too a family member who thinks you're going to actually die and will tell you to breathe out, and you go, oh, I am. Sorry, I messed up, or, you know, whatever you have to tell them, okay? So that, that definitely does happen. Yeah. And, and, and there's other factors too, I mean, you know, people put all kinds of things up their nose, they increase bleeding, and I don't just mean cocaine, I mean like nasal steroids, which will dramatically increase your uh, bleeding from your nose. Any other questions, or? Well, if you think of some things later, we can talk about it. I heard nasal steroids. That's right. That's right, nasal steroids. Corticosteroids, how to lose lose all your bone mass (laughs) and muscle. (laughs)